0: If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we come before you this morning to, to declare and to recognize and acknowledge that you alone are God. That there is no God like you. that you are the God of all the earth, that you are the maker, that you're the creator, that you're the, you are the redeemer, you are the one Lord who loves us with an everlasting love. And we recognize this Advent season and, and this opportunity to celebrate Christ's birth. We thank you for the obedience of Christ for his willingness to give up his rights and his home and heaven and come down wrapped in the skin of a baby. And we acknowledge that that, that in that obedience he brought light, light into this world, Lord, and we're thankful for that, the light that shines into the darkest places. So I pray, Lord, that as we Reflect on the word that you have for us this morning in this Advent season Lord that we would allow ourselves to be Transformed that we would allow ourselves to hear the word that you're speaking to us And I pray for Conrad Lord as he As he delivers this word I pray Lord for your strength Lord for your confidence Any confidence that he has, Lord, may it be solely in you and what you desire to do through him this morning. I pray, Lord, for clarity in his voice and strength and for a shield of protection to be around him. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. I kind of liked having communion at the beginning of the service, seeing you close and up front and close before the message. This morning's message is entitled Grace, 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 and as a, a number of times throughout this series, it didn't necessarily go the direction that I had imagined it would go, but it's all about Grace. Last week's message focused on the power of the cross that Paul consistently proclaims throughout his letters. Christ crucified, he hollered. Christ crucified. The cross, the power of our salvation, he declared as he marched across Asia and the Roman Empire. Like the energizer bunny, Paul just keeps going until in Acts 26 he ends up in Caesarea on his way to Rome, having said that he appealed his case, the case against him to the Roman emperor himself, And because he was a Roman citizen, he got an opportunity to do that. But on his way in Caesarea, King Agrippa, in Acts 26, wanted to talk with him. And so, in that discussion with King Agrippa, Paul reveals his discussion with Jesus, or actually Jesus' discussion with Paul, on the road to Damascus, when Paul was struck down. And Paul says this, and this is Acts 26, 15 to 18, I'm just going to read it for you, but I want you to listen closely to the very end of it, which is chapter, verse 18. Then I, Paul, ask, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, and I want you to listen closely. What is, what is Jesus sending Paul to the Gentiles for? He's sending, them very, he's sending him very specifically for two things. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light is the first thing. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, which is essentially a synonym for the same thing. From darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's the first commission so that, and the second commission, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Two things, that they may come out of darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, number one, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Those are Jesus' words to Paul. The ordering of Jesus' commission from darkness to light so that their sins may be forgiven, is no mistake. Do you hear it there, the ordering, opening their eyes, turning them from darkness to light, so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. N.T. Wright describes the, the world in which Paul lived. And he says it this way, It was full of dark powers. The world in which Paul lived was full of dark powers. Or to be more precise, the created order was good. What God had made was good, as Genesis had said. But humans worshipped non-gods, pseudo-gods, or forces within the natural order. And had thereby handed over to those beings a power that was not rightfully theirs. It was not rightfully the power of those beings, those deities. These dark forces had taken over the proper human authority of the world. And the evidence was everywhere. Every non-Jewish city was full of shrines, N.T. Wright said, full of strange worship, full of human lives misshapen by dehumanizing practices. And Paul believed that on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth had defeated the ultimate forces of evil. The resurrection had proved it. Over the past several weeks, I've been very direct in declaring this message that the powers of Satan were overcome by the cross, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Hebrew term for Satan refers to accuser, and it was used to refer to the dark powers that grip, distort, and ultimately destroy human beings and societies. So I want to read that again. The Hebrews, Jews understood Satan to be the dark power that appears to grip, distort, and ultimately destroy human beings and societies. In Paul's understanding, the darkness, because of the resurrection of Christ, the cross and resurrection, no longer had any actual authority. The darkness no longer had any actual authority because of the death and resurrection of the Messiah. As I left the pulpit almost immediately last week, I was struck by the thought that this message of the gospel that Paul preached is different than what I have thought of most of my life about the cross. Most of my life I have understood the cross to be the place of my personal salvation, where my own personal sins are forgiven. This is what I was taught. This indeed has been the primary focus of the gospel story since the Protestant Reformation for about 500 years. Probably it goes back to Martin Luther, who in his, in his torment to find peace with God, discovered that just shall live by faith in Paul's writings. And it is by grace you are saved. And this is indeed part of the gospel story. Our forgiveness of our sins is indeed part of the gospel story, part of the cross. And Paul makes it clear. But it is only part of the story. For Paul, what dominates his understanding of the cross's importance is that it has overcome the demonic powers of the world, the dark powers of the world, the principalities and powers that had taken over the world after we sinned in the Garden of Eden. And that appeared in the form of idol worship in every non-Jewish city of the then known world. Worship that always destroyed those who were doing the worshiping. Because that's what Satan's up to, folks. He is an accuser and a destroyer. And so those who were worshiping in pagan worship always end up also destroying themselves and their societies. In Isaiah 9, and here's an example, the prophet declares that the people living in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali have seen a great light. And on those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Why Zebulun and Naphtali? Because these were lands that during the exile to Assyria, the king of Assyria had transplanted folks from Assyria who worshiped pagan gods into the northern part of Israel, historic Jewish lands. And they intermingled among the remaining Jews. And they established their idolatrous practices in northern Israel which included, in some cases, the sacrificing of children. It was part of their pagan worship. You see, this is what Paul was up against. Societies and cultures that worship pagan gods, and this worship eventually destroyed the worshipers. Because idol worship, the worship of anything other than the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always destroys. Because behind these pagan practices is always the face of darkness itself. The accuser, the destroyer. What appears sort of tame on the surface, underneath is full of darkness. Underneath is full of wildness. Anne Voskamp says this about idols in her one of her Advent readings. She, she begins with the story of Elijah's overcoming the Baal worshippers on Mount Carmel who were idol worshipers. And if you remember that story, they marched around appealing to Baal to bring fire down. They eventually slashed themselves with knives, trying to get him to perform for him, to appeal to him. And of course, no fire came. And she says this, you know you have an idol whenever you have to perform. Think about that with me. You know you have an idol whenever you have to perform. You know you have a bale that needs to be cut down whenever you cut yourself down. You know you have a bale that needs to be cut down whenever you cut yourself down. Have you ever thought about how serious it is to cut yourself down? You made in God's image? You with the imprint of God upon you? Whenever you slash yourself, she says, you have an idol that needs to be slashed down because that is what every idol ultimately wants. It wants to make your blood run wild and dance you mad and drive you right into the unforgiving ground itself. Every idol wants to be cut open, wants you to be cut open for it. Every idol wants to ultimately destroy you because it has the face of darkness behind it. Do you hear why Paul was so focused on the fact that the cross had overcome the demonic powers? Forgiveness of sins was not something that the pagan world knew much about or had thought much about or understood, but they understood darkness. They understood what it was to give their child up for a sacrifice. They understood death. They understood the dehumanizing demands of their pagan deities. They understood what it meant to try to perform for gods who never heard them. They understood darkness if they did not understand forgiveness. What we have heard in the church for the past 500 years is primarily that the purpose of the cross is to forgive our sins and to offer us a relationship with God that we did not have before. That Christ is the bridge between who we were separated from God. And this is indeed the truth. Don't hear me say otherwise. It is indeed the truth. But it's only part of the truth. It is only true because the dark powers have been overcome. It is only true because the demonic powers have been defeated by Christ on the cross. Their power is now in a state of retreat, folks. No matter how dark your world looks this morning, no matter how dark our world looks, Paul is making very clear that the darkness is retreating. Amen? Amen. That's, that's, a, that's a word of faith. The darkness, even as we sit here this morning, is retreating and there is a day that is coming where it will be fully light. And so our sins are forgiven because the darkness has been overcome. And Jesus makes that clear in his commissioning of Paul. Go back with me to the beginning. Jesus said, Paul, you have come to deliver them from darkness to light, from Satan's power to mine, so that their sins can be forgiven. Folks, the grace of Christ means I no longer have to perform The grace of Christ means you no longer have to perform. The grace of Christ means you do not have to perform. The law was about performance. The Old Testament law was about performance, about getting it right, about doing enough, about being perfect. But the cross rendered performance irrelevant as a means to the love of God. Because Christ performed what we could not. A sinless being, the Son of God, who picked up our sin, and the scripture says, became sin for us, and kicked the evil powers in the gut at the same time. Only God could do that, and thank God that God did that. The powers were rendered powerless, so that you and I no longer have to perform. Just, I'd like you to sit with that for a moment and think about areas of your life where you're trying desperately to perform, to get it right, to do it right, to do enough. That's not our starting place, folks. Our starting place is that the powers have been overcome and that we are forgiven. The word of forgiveness is an amazing part of the cross story. It gives us comfort and assurance and relief for those of us who wallow in guilt most of our lives. As a freshman at Wheaton College, I was blown away by Martin Luther's essay called The Freedom of a Christian, where Luther says, A Christian is free from all things, so that they need not work in order to be justified and saved, but receive these gifts in abundance from faith alone. No, he said, it would be foolish to pretend to be justified, to be set free, to be saved, and to be made a Christian. By doing anything good. I found it tremendously freeing. Because up to that point in my life. I was trying to perform as much as I could. I was one as I've shared who laid awake at night. Repeatedly asking Jesus to forgive my sins. Always worried that I hadn't prayed in the correct way. Or I hadn't prayed enough. Or that my mind was drifting while I was praying. Or that I didn't really mean what I was praying. Or that I was actually praying to the ceiling rather than to God. And on and on and on. To try to get my prayers perfectly. Perfectly. And while I was perhaps extraordinarily tormented, I think there is a nugget of truth to my struggle that is the struggle for all of us this morning. Am I good enough? Am I loved enough? Do I look good enough? And am I I valuable to anyone? Would anybody miss me if I was gone? Does anyone appreciate what I do? Am I working hard enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing it right What more do I need to do before I go to bed tonight? Did I do everything on my list? Those are the words of the idols. Demanding, 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 and demanding more. This this week, the board encouraged the ministers in our monthly reports to move beyond listing the things that we did in the last 30 days and to include more about vision. And I responded to Susan when she informed me of this, that we will definitely work on making that adjustment. But I know that for me, my monthly report to the board is a way of trying to justify my existence. It's a list of things I've done, showing that I've done enough, I've done it well enough. And I don't think I'm alone. I think this is the nagging question of so many of us. Interesting, Paul himself, Paul himself seems to have struggled with a similar question. Periodically he'll say, Is it all in vain? This suffering, this preaching, this encouragement, does it matter and will it matter? So we're in good company with these questions, but they're part of the darkness that Jesus came to give light to and to say, I love you, child, as you are this morning. The gospel message that Christ accepts me as I am in my brokenness and my bustedness and my failures and my flaws is incredibly good news. As it is the gospel's permission to acknowledge, as is the gospel's permission to acknowledge that we are broken and we are busted and beat up and bruised. But for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, the idea of genuinely confessing our sins, the idea of acknowledging our brokenness and our failures and how we have intentionally or unintentionally hurt other people, how we've unintentionally or unintentionally sinned, is sometimes difficult for us and even impossible. Because too often in the church, we have emphasized performance as the means to God's grace and God's love. And so then when we fail and we sin and we hurt others, we often hide those things rather than confess them. Because we wouldn't look good. We have made grace, we have made performance part of the grace package too often in the church. But I am convinced that confession is part of the forgiveness package. Remember Paul's words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Isn't it ironic that the people who've received the message that our salvation doesn't depend on how good we are are the ones trying hardest to be good? Isn't it ironic that the people who've learned that we don't need to be good are the ones trying the hardest to be good? Those who have been taught that Jesus accepts us as we are are the ones who don't accept ourselves as we are? That Jesus himself became sin for us and yet we aren't willing to own up to our own sin? I think an absolute indicator of whether we have truly accepted God's grace is how quickly we apologize to others for our failures. I've said something like this over the last couple of weeks, and I believe it's true. How quickly we say, I'm sorry, how quickly we repent, how quickly we acknowledge our imperfections, whether we've tried to hurt someone or not. If they feel hurt, then we owe them something. We owe them an acknowledgement of their pain. Sociologists have this little quote, and it's one of the best things I think anyone's written in sociology. Situations described as real are real in their consequences. You may say to me, Conrad, you hurt me, and I can deny up and down that I intended to hurt you. That doesn't solve the relational problem. I need to acknowledge my sorrow that you felt hurt by me. That's hard for us to do in the church, because it means we have to be vulnerable. It means we have to acknowledge we're not good enough. But the reality is we're not good enough. We're the people who are supposed to know that. I talked to a Christian counselor recently and I said, why is it that we in the church are so often resistant to counseling and therapy when it is so clear that some of us need it? He paused and he said, I've learned that one's willingness to seek counseling is also related to one's willingness to confess their sins before God. That those who are not confessing before God are also not going to confess before a counselor. That they're just not in the practice of confessing their sins. They're not in the practice of confessing their failures and flaws. And I say that as one who regularly sees a Christian counselor and has for years. To whom I can confess. To whom I can get feedback and counsel. To whom I can talk about the darkness that's going on inside of me. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't, wasn't able to do that. To confess before a brother in Christ my brokenness and my sins. Folks, the good news of God's grace will only ever be felt by those who recognize they need it. The good news of God's grace will only be recognized by those who know that they need it. And you can tell who they are. They say, I'm sorry. They acknowledge that they've hurt others. There are people who say, I'm sorry to you, and then say, I'm sorry to God, when they go into their prayer closet. But if they're not saying, I'm sorry to you, I can bet your top dollar, they're not saying, I'm sorry to God either. Not in a genuine way. John said, we can't love our brother, or not love our brother, and love God at the same time. And so indeed, the forgiveness of our sins, and God's acceptance of us as broken and busted people, is a glorious and wonderful truth of the cross. But it is secondary to the primary truth, not less than, but it comes after. The primary truth that Paul proclaims all through his epistles, that the cross has overcome the powers of Satan. If we go back to Jesus' words, Paul, you are to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from Satan to God, and so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. The first and foremost message of the cross is that the powers of Satan have been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that once they were defeated, then we could have forgiveness of our sins. We didn't need the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And we could join a community of those who likewise were sanctified by faith. The good news that our sins are forgiven would not be good news if Satan and darkness had not be overcome. Because they would still have the authority to send us to hell. But he lost that authority, folks. The demonic powers lost that authority to send us to hell. Amen? Come on, amen? Amen. You see, our emphasis on personal forgiveness doesn't necessarily sound like good news to some people around us. Because what we start off saying is, You're a sinner, did you know that? And what that too often comes off sounding like is, Did you know you're a scumbag? Did you know you're unworthy? Compare it to we who are Christians. Did you know you're really a scoundrel? Did you know you're unclean and filthy scum of the earth? And then we add, but by the way, I've got good news. You don't have to be a scumbag anymore. You can be just like me and just like the people in my church. All clean, all performing, all looking good, all smelling right. All with our best clothes on. That's the good news. Rubbish. There ain't no good news there, folks. If we started with the message that Jesus started with, if we started with the message that there is darkness in the world, that there is darkness in our families, that there is darkness in our marriages, that there is darkness in our lives, our aloneness, our discouragement, our fears, our lies about ourselves, our sense that we're unworthy. If we started with the fact that all of this was overcome by the cross, people get that, folks. People get that. The pagan world in Paul's day got that. They were losing their kids. If this was the starting point, the cross would sound like good news. Isaiah 9, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Or Zachariah's song, after hearing that his son John would be born. He said this, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun, the light, will come from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Or Simeon's prayer upon seeing the little Messiah in front of him, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss, can now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory to your people, Israel. All through the scripture, it begins with the light overcoming the darkness, and then the truth of our forgiveness of sins. While some of us may not be able, to, while some may not be able to idea, identify with the idea of sin, particularly those who haven't grown up in the church. All of us in this world can't identify with being in the dark, of being afraid, of feeling alone, of being bullied, of being beat up, of being hurt, of being deceived by someone we thought loved us, of being violated by someone who was supposed to take care of us, of being hungry with nothing to eat or thirsty with nothing to drink, or being in prison lying on the floor wondering what's next, or being caught in addictions or habits or pain or harming ourselves because we're in so much pain or thinking about taking our lives to escape the dark of living with so much shame that we cry ourselves to sleep or night or cry alone when no one is watching or drink ourselves into a memoryless stupor folks those around us may not know what sin is but they know what darkness is and we know what darkness is so in so many ways we've gotten it backwards we tell people that they are sinners and can come to Jesus for salvation Language that in ancient cultures and in ours doesn't make much sense at times. But what if we started where others are, and where even we are, who still follow Jesus, who, where even we who follow Jesus are some days yet, in the dark? What if we reached out our hand this Christmas to someone who's crying, to someone who's in pain, to someone who's alone, who's hopeless, who's dying, who's helpless, who's living ashamed of what they look like or what they've done? Who doesn't feel that they're as good as everyone else or don't have the clothes that others have or can't keep a job or in prison or can't stay on the wagon of sobriety or are struggling with a deep secret or aren't sure they're really loved and on and on and on. What if we simply listened to their story this Christmas and the stories of those who loved them? What if we identified with their darkness? What if we lived in their darkness with them for a while until Jesus gives us a chance to offer them a light? What if in being with them, they begin to see the light that is within us? What if our life with Jesus is just the light we need? What if they don't need to be told that they are sinners, but they need to be comforted and cared for in order to realize that they can be released from the darkness? I recently talked to a young person who was doing outreach and ministry, and he had this epiphany where he realized that God was simply asking him to listen, and out of the listening, the Holy Spirit would tell him what to do. To listen, and out of the listening, the Holy Spirit would show him how to respond. In telling me this, he exhibited joy and freedom and excitement as he shared this revelation. He could do this. He didn't have to have all the answers. He didn't have to preach to people. He didn't have to give them the four spiritual laws. He had to listen, and listening was something he could do. Listening is hard for we who follow Christ. We grow up in the church, and we're told we have the right answers. We're told we have the responsibility to show those answers without to others. And suddenly, we too quickly become part of that pharisaical crowd that Jesus talked about. Standing on the corners, proclaiming they, when they know the way, and that the rest of the world is going to hell. But in a back alley in E-Town, a young person is shooting up again with heroin. In a nursing home in Reims, an older person is crying themselves to sleep with hopelessness. In an apartment somewhere on High Street... A child's mother and father are sharing with them that they are divorcing and the world will never be the same. At Cornerstone, two high school students are plotting a way to escape the abuse they experience at home. And a young man or woman is lying in Lancaster prison, wondering if the future has any good for them. And on and on and on. While none of these people and children with the imprint of God on them have the foggiest idea perhaps of what sin is, they know all about the darkness. Folks, we belong with the Messiah. Back in the alley with the young addict, addict, in that nursing home with the crying, dejected grandma, with the little girl and the mom and dad whose lives are breaking up, with the inmate sleeping with one eye open for fear of his cellmate, with the little boy going hungry to bed because it's Christmas break. Before we have any business giving them the bad news, we better give them the good news proclaimed to the shepherds on the fields in Bethlehem town, where things were as dark as they are in E-Town today. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men, on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest, and on peace to women, on whom his favor rests. To children, to everyone, peace just to we at, Mennonite, at Mennonites at 300 South Spruce Street, no. Peace to the Catholics only on St. St. Pete's, no. Peace to the pagans des- desperately looking for light, Yes. Peace to our 20-somethings who've wandered away from their faith in the Messiah, yes. Peace to my students struggling with anxiety and depression and a host of other things, yes. Peace to some people but not everybody, no. Peace to all on whom God's favor rests. Is it any wonder that our Lord began his ministry by reading Psalm Isaiah 61? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim what for the prisoners? Freedom. And recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or as St. John puts it in chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It is probable that the church's focus for the last 15, 500 years on the cross, as I said, was in part related to Martin Luther's discovery of freedom, a wonderful part of our salvation. But Luther also understood that the cross overcame the powers and principalities, that they were rendered helpless by the cross, and it's reflected in his hymn, a Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, the powers are defeated and our sins are forgiven. Truly, this is the good news. Amen.
2: Go!
3: Good morning. My name is Susan Hostedler, and I want to share with you um, just a testimony of a way I have experienced the light shine in the darkness recently. And a few weeks ago, I had a situation that I was really concerned about. I was really worried. And I just kept getting more anxious about it. I kept feeling like I was sitting right on top of a powder keg that was ready to blow. Like, that, that's just the only way I can describe it. Like, it, it was a ticking time bomb, and I didn't know what to do. So I was awake at 4 a.m. one morning, and I was just praying about it. I'm like, God, I, you know, I can't even figure out what to do. I need some light on this situation. And almost instantaneously, I had the thought, what if you're not? I'm like, what What if I'm not? What if you're not sitting on a powder keg? What if you're not sitting on a time bomb? What if you've believed some darkness about something And that's not what it was, and I was like, oh, well, okay. And the next thought I had was, and so if, let's say you're not sitting on on top of a time bomb, what would you do next? Wow, well, that was a really different thing, so I'm like, okay, God, what would I do next? And he lined that stuff up for me, and I realized that I had started to believe something that wasn't true, and so, this morning I'm coming to you to talk about the discovery class we are doing because I'm wondering if there's some ways that some of us have started to believe some things that aren't true about ourselves, that maybe you're not gifted, maybe that you have gifts but you don't know how to use them, maybe you have gifts but you, there's no place for you here to use them, maybe you believe you already know all there is to know about yourself and your gifts and God's and, and what God has for you. So I just want to challenge that, because part of the shining of the light is discovery. It's discovering new things about yourself, about God, about the people around you. Do you guys want to start handing out those those forms? So we, um, Scotty and Colin, are going to hand out these forms about the discovery class that we are hoping to have here. It's a winter Bible school. talked about it a couple months ago, but not recently. And so... um, Discovery is really part of being apostolic. It's part of being on the ship and learning new things to keep the ship going in the right direction. So um, there's a really good explanation on the front of the flyer you're going to get that tells you what Discovery Course is. But I want to read to you what our very own Paul Swunger said about this Discovery Course, because he lines it up exactly right. He said, the Discovery Course is a great course. It helps you discover your spiritual gifts and what your passion is. It really equips you for God's calling in your life. It helps you understand other people better. It makes you feel good about the gifts you have because they are unique to you. It helps you discover things that you didn't know were there. And that is exactly what this course can help you do. So you will see on the flyer you get, it starts January 15. It is open to the district, so we have a number of different teachers and hopefully people from the district uh, doing this. It runs three weeks each month, I think it is. It's a little bit split up because of um, family night. We did this a couple of years ago, and it was foundational for a lot of people. It was really foundational for me, and I can tell you, to discovering my gifts and using them. So I would just encourage you to pray about it and to um, do it. There is a cost, it's $25. There is work, but there really is always work when we're kingdom workers. So um, we'd like to know soon if you would like to do it. Uh, One of the main questions I get is, will there be childcare? And the answer is, there may be childcare. (laughs) So if you are interested um, in doing it and there's not childcare, I can work with you to figure out a way to do it. I also want to invite you, if you already did it before and you'd like to do it again, do it. If you started it before but you weren't able to complete it with us, um, do it. If you just aren't sure do it. So, okay. Thank you very much. Actually, before I say thank you, I just want to pray about it. Is that okay? Can I do that quick? God, I just thank you for um, the ways that you are shining light here in our community, here in our congregation, in our own individual lives. I just pray that um, the Holy Spirit would be moving in this discovery course, that it would be your timing, when we have it, how we have it, who is there. I just thank you that you have good plans for us as you release your spirit over us. Amen.
2: Good
1: morning. So this is just a year in appeal. If you think about getting uh, into the building fund, uh, we would like to see that we can pay it off as soon as possible. Um, I just want to thank you for those that have made pledges and continue to meet those obligations. It's just amazing to see when we started, we're like candy. And now we can look over there and say, we did. Now we've done it. Thank you.
2: Everyone have a merry Christmas.
1: Thank you for being here this morning, this is the last full week before Christmas, so if you're like me, you know your week is probably looking full, but in the midst of that, I want to encourage you to take time with Christ. Take time to remember what He's done for you, to um, thank Him for the gifts He's given you, to thank, you for the way, to thank Him for the way that you're very, very wealthy, because you're a follower of Jesus, and to look for those people in your lives and around you who just need a listening ear, need your love, need your care. Let's stand together. After I pray, Kate will play through. The worship team will play a chorus, and then Nikki will dismiss you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we stand on this side of Calvary. Thank you so much that we stand on this side of the cross, that our sins are forgiven, and we are people for whom the powers have been overcome. Help us to understand what it means to be people like that people who walk under the authority of a God who has freed us from sin and Satan, a church who lives under the authority of a king who has freed us from sin and from Satan, to be people of grace and your love in the midst of a world that is full of darkness. Show us, Lord Jesus, our Messiah, how to do that. If you have asked us to do that, would you have? You will surely show us. And so we look to you for direction This Christmas season, in Jesus' name, amen.